listening to That'll Preach. We've got an interview lined up for you guys today. The great guest we have, Les Newsom. Les Newsom is a pastor, senior pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Oxford, Mississippi. He's also spent 25 years ministering to college students through RUF. He spent time on Memphis, uh, the campus of Memphis, uh, Ole Miss, and then he is also an area director for a long time, 25 years of ministry in that. So uh, he's a cool guy because you got to be that to minister to these youngins. So we appreciate him coming on, talk a little about a uh, little bit about preaching. And uh, Les, uh, I remember meeting you Many years ago, you came and spoke at our men's conference uh, in 2012, and you gave a great message. I think it was on Revelation. Yeah, and uh, yeah, bold, bold, uh, bold choice. But uh, it was a great sermon. And then I found your podcast and some of the stuff you were doing with RUF, and uh, found myself really enjoying listening to your teaching. So, Les, thank you for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you being here with us. I appreciate it, Brian. It's great to uh, be with you. I've always enjoyed all of my friends that I've made down in Tallahassee. So I appreciate being able to talk. You got to you got to come come visit Tallahassee again. Come come around. I know. Tell your tell your lead pastor that he's got to get me. That's my old seminary roommate, by the way. You know. That's right. That's right. Yep. Yep. Tell him the Good doors all. I'll, I'll let him know. I'll be like, look, you got you got this. You got to reconnect with that old roommate. And make sure he comes comes around. But uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about preaching. Um, because this is a topic that, you know, is something that I, I feel like it's cliche to call it an art form or maybe pretentious, you know, a little bit. But but there is, I think, something to that. And I think preaching is one of those things where, like, people just know when it's good, when they're affected by it, and when they're not, you know. And it's one of those things that I think people work at and they try to develop. And it's really great hearing uh, seasoned preachers like yourself uh, give their thoughts on it, but um, I, I want to hear just a little bit uh, a biograph your preaching biography. When did you start getting interested in preaching? What was that first sermon like? What? How did you kind of get into this world and discover? You know, I can kind of adequately do this. What was that like? Yeah, that's a great question. I, <clears throat> you know, I, I lean a lot on um, Paul's outline of the qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3, where he's talking about, you know, husband of but one wife and not giving too much wine. He's talking about qualifications. But he happens to throw in this uh, kind of strange qualification that says, able to teach. Uh, and what I take from that is, is there really is to some degree uh, an ability that is just God-given uh, that is more caught than taught, I think, hmm. Um, where you just find yourself with the ability to hold people's attention without putting them to sleep. Um, I think when I was in high school, I began to notice that I was not uncomfortable in front of people. Uh, I did speech tournaments. I did, you know, uh, theater programming. And by the time I got into college and began to kind of put my big toe into the realm of youth ministry, those were the first times that I got a chance to address people up front um, and I don't want to go back to any of the content of those <laughs> those particular things that we called talks back in the day. You couldn't say preaching back in the day. You had to say talks. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, th that was where it started. I think in college, working with young people and trying to find ways to take truths that had rang true in my own heart and translate them to, you know, a very naturally skeptical audience. So from the very beginning, I felt like I was always talking to people for whom they would have problems. Um, some of that was projection. I was struggling in college uh, with making sense of my faith, uh, especially my ownership in that faith. And I was doing a lot of autobiographical uh, discourse with people when I was in college, uh, trying to work through my own issues, right, and resolve my own internal struggles. And I think God was using that to kind of start to develop a real desire to want to do it for a living. It's funny. It reminds me of this uh, Babylon Bee article where it said like uh pastor in skinny jeans uh sitting on a stool totally not giving a sermon just talking you know <laughs> it's just kind of this aversion <laughs> you, know, right. the time, you know the yeah, time it's like you don't call it a sermon yeah ha having a conversation right now you know we've actually started saying this something similar which you're not allowed to call a church a church today you know like yeah. what, what do you go to church i go to the journey oh yeah <laughs> i had a friend i had a friend of mine who, and i don't want to yeah. tell you who may go to this church. I had a friend of mine call me who said he was driving through New Jersey a while back and found a church who the name was just Liquid. I was like, all right, <laughs> whatever you do, don't call it yeah. a church. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Yeah, it's like we're not a church, we're liquid, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Now it, it's it's all those you know trends. I guess maybe they maybe they come and go, but um, you talk about you know you realize you could hold people's attention. I mean, some of these things are like very <laughs> very basic. I guess you know it's like uh, do people are, are do they seem to you know follow what you're saying? Does it engage them in a particular way? But I'm sure that there were people that you listened to that inspired you and maybe even got you thinking like, I kind of, I like the way that they explain things. I like the way that they engage the text. Who are some of those early formative influences for you with regard to preaching? Oh, that's a great question. The church that I grew up in sometime around, I think probably eighth or ninth grade brought on an associate pastor who coincidentally enough had been pastoring in Florida prior to um, who remains a good friend, he's obviously much older uh, now, but still pastoring, who was just a particularly dynamic personality from the pulpit. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to qualify that even more by saying that he just kind of possessed an earnestness uh, in his uh, presentation that just was very compelling to me. And, and <clears throat> in retrospect, I was quite taken with, you know, his... Uh, manner of preaching and teaching, I did come to be convinced later on that part of what was really grabbing me was not so much his presentation, but it really was the content that he was leaning into. Uh, he was a someone who had a great appreciation for the historic Christian faith, and so he was taking the text much more seriously than I thought he was. But if you'd asked me when I was in college, listening to him and feeling very compelled by the way he was teaching and preaching... Um, uh, I would have told you that it was because he was such a great speaker. Later on, I began to realize, no, it's because he was unpacking exegetical truth that was causing it to resonate with me, right? Um, but there's no doubt that I, I'm definitely a bit of a mimic from all of the people that I've come to really appreciate. Uh, once I went to seminary, I began to hear a lot from a guy who at that time was the president of Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis by the name of Brian Chapel. Uh, Brian was a very deep influence on me for his ability to identify what I would call gospel-centered preaching, uh, which is just preaching that basically tries to find uh, every text's ultimate resolution in the person and work of Jesus. Um, and it was a great schooling for uh, us in that regard, all the way through seminary and really in the first couple of years of my time on campus with college students. Um, somewhere in the mid to late 90s, uh, you know, I began to listen to Tim Keller and, you know, I really swallowed him whole in a lot of different ways, mostly because I was working on a college campus and Tim was working in Manhattan. So we were both dealing with very secular audiences, um, and trying to, um, anticipate some of the issues that were going on within that particular audience. Uh, we just, there was complete resonance there. Yes, part of it's due to what I think is a unique genius that Tim Keller had, but mostly it was because we were in similar context. So if you wrap all those up, I think that kind of summarizes sort of preaching for me. I try to achieve a measure of earnestness uh, through being gripped by the truth myself. I try to make sure that those sermons are, you know, directed at Jesus <laughs> and that he's the one who resolves all those texts. Uh, and then finally, just making sure that we're not just preaching for ourselves, but that we're looking to the culture around us uh, to reach them with the same message of the gospel. That's really a very articulate way of putting it. I mean, you talked about being a mimic, and it makes me think about, I think it was Bono from U2, yeah, the, the great the great Reformed preacher Bono of U2, right? He mentioned how people asked him how they got their unique sound as a band, and he said something like, we tried copying everybody else and we failed, you know, in trying to be like all these influences, they end up kind of de developing their own sound. And and I suppose perhaps preaching is, is, is a similar vein. And I like what you said about realizing it was the content of, of that associate pastor that you knew maybe in, in retrospect, you're like, Oh, it really wasn't how flashy he was or how, you know, eloquent necessarily in terms of his affect, but there was an earnestness and, and, and the, uh, the content. I, I think about like a guy like uh, Martin Lloyd Jones. You know, I, I think everybody, call, you know, Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, and I'm like, I don't even know what he sounds like, but 
you know, and, and certainly he's an incredible preacher, but I think, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he had his affect wasn't like anything super, what we would think today is super charismatic, but he could grip you because I thought the way that he preached was such a powerful way. I know he was an influence for, for Keller. Well, uh, you hope that you, you, yeah, that's part of what you want when you sit for a sermon is, 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 I think as an audience member, you're like, well, I don't know. Do you believe this, sir? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a sense in which, look, every time we approach really any topic in life, we are always a salesman for whatever we found the most joy in or whatever mm. we found the most interesting. You don't have to like, you know, plot and plan for how to work a conversation around to your favorite television show the latest episode of which just came out last night. And here we are around the water cooler and like, oh my gosh, did you see such and such last night? We talk about that because it's grabbed our imaginations. Uh, it's, it's, it's thrilled us in some way. Maybe it's perplexed us in some way. We're engaged in it. And that to me is what good preaching does, is it's able to find a way to capture the imagination of the people that are listening. Uh, yes, so part of that's my earnestness, but part of it is, have I done whatever soul work is being done through that particular text in order to say, I, I think I found something here. This is really interesting. This is really applicable to us. This, this will really change things if we really jump into it. So I had good teachers along the way that kind of walked through that. Since we're throwing in good preachers, I throw in Sinclair Ferguson as well. Oh, he's great. Yeah. And largely because I think if there's a modern Lloyd-Jones, I think Ferguson would be the one except with a much better disposition. I, Lloyd-Jones, I heard, was a bit of a grumpy uh, uh, soul, uh, but Ferguson is just- I so could tender. see that. I could see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In his writing, it kind of comes out. Yeah. But Ferguson has got such a tender heart and a pastor's yeah. heart uh, that even when he's smacking me upside the head, he does it with a velvet glove. And uh, I just, I so appreciated not only his you know, erudite patient, patient exegesis, uh, but just with the pastor's heart. He's trying to speak to your heart to- to speak into your imagination in a powerful way. I remember just when I first became a Christian, it was like sermons, because I became a Christian in college. And this is like YouTube, is, everyone's putting their stuff on YouTube. And I remember stumbling on it, you know, MacArthur and Keller and Piper and, and uh, you know, some, some other guys who are, <laughs> now if I mentioned them, I'd be in trouble, you know, <laughs> but, but, right. uh, but, but, but Sinclair Ferguson too. And it was this weird thing where I'm like, man, I feel like, I'm listening to these sermons like like people listen to music and you, you you have these sermons that impact you and you remember the time you listen to them. I remember uh, Sinclair Ferguson. It was, it was something it was I think it was something talking about adoption, you know, adopted in Christ. And he's great on that. And you just have these pivotal moments where you're moved. And I think you recognize, OK, something happened there. This wasn't just facts downloaded in my brain. I think Keller talks about this, about preaching to change people on the spot. Just this kind of, uh, you, it, it's it's something live is happening. It's not merely just you took notes from a lecture, but that you're being ministered to on the spot. Something's something's happening. You're making such a great point, Brian, because I I do think that there's a there's almost a a knee jerk fear that when I think as a minister about what my role is as a minister, that for me to go out and to say wow, so I'm going to get up and preach a sermon. Like, who's going to have any interest in that whatsoever? But I also think that, that there's something very natural inside the human heart that really wants for someone to stand up in the town square and herald an announcement about news. Whether it's mm -hmm. good news, bad news, we, we long for people to speak, which may go to, a, it may go to a, uh, uh, an aspect of the image of God inside human beings that need to respond to an authoritative voice standing up and saying, thus saith the Lord. So we may be designed in that way so that we long to hear from these voices. So whenever you, you, you hear someone who's extremely skeptical about why in the world would you go to church on Sunday mornings and sit there for an hour, hour and a half, and listen to some guy get up there and drone on for 25, 30 minutes, yeah, but you're still consulting lots of other voices in your world, right. okay? that for whatever reason are compelling as well. So our, our task is not quite that odd. And I think it's one of the reasons why, despite the church's continual, you know, battering that it gets throughout the ages of its own failure and getting in its own way, preaching still stands. It still compels. It still draws. It still 
is moving through lives and renovating people as it dies. Well, I, I love the way that you talk about, I mean, you mentioned earlier about the earnestness, and then you, you, you spoke a little bit about like a, kind of this authoritative voice. And I, and, and kind of when we were joking about, you know, the guy in the skinny jeans saying, we're just having conversation, not a sermon. There's almost this reticence because perhaps because of ways in which you can be, you know, overbearing in the pulpit or all the kind of classic tropes that you think about with a preacher and a bullhorn, all these types of things. There seems to be a reticence to have that sort of authoritative, you know, push in your preaching. And how do you think about the authority of the pulpit? How do, how, what are some healthy ways to think about that? We don't shy away from it, but we can avoid some of the excesses. Yeah, I think that's very much tied to the significance and, and really the role of preaching, I think, in the life of the church, because every preacher has to go through a regular discipline, and hopefully his education has led him into this, to where I really don't have anything to say that's coming from Les Newsom. Um, what has to guide the role of the church is the text, the text, and the text. Um, in other words, authority from a pulpit is always a derived authority. It's always a, a trans, transitional authority. I'm transferring, I'm being an instrument, as it were, for an authoritative text of the life of people. And so the, 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 the authority of preaching is directly tied to the authority of Scripture and what a Christian believes regarding what really is that text. And it's unlike any other text in you know, human antiquity, of course, right? It's God's very word. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's been you know, uh, transferred faithfully across the generations to bring us this, uh, not just words about God, but actually God's words, right? Um, so yeah, I think every, every preacher is compelled upon to keep that discipline of saying, are the things that I'm saying naturally and obviously drawn from the text that I'm unpacking here? Um, and I think I have every right as a listener to say, I hear what you're saying. I'm just not sure exactly how I got it from this text. Um, I think that's worth, I think that's worth people asking. Now, having said that, I want to qualify this for a second. And this is where I may get in trouble because I thought, why not unleash this on your, on your poor listeners here? At the same time, while there is an instinct to obviously live with the text, I do think there's another part of that conversation. And the other side of that conversation is to be aware of enough of the questions that my audience are asking about ultimate things in general, so that when I get up to present a text to the congregation, I'm entertaining questions to the text um, that actually they're actually asking. Let me, let me put it in a short way this way. I believe that to some degree, a sermon is the yield, Y-E-I-L-D, the yield that comes from posing a certain question or set of questions to the infallible, inerrant text of Scripture, okay? The text is objective. Um, the text is something that is immovable. It's God's express word. The questions, though, that I pose to that text are somewhat varied, Okay. This is the reason why you can account for the fact that preachers who have been preaching for any reasonable period of time can oftentimes have two different sermons on the same text. Well, what changed? Did they just get smarter the second time that they preached it? Well, not necessarily. What happened was is there was a new pastoral context that arose that they took those questions and posed those to the text, and it yielded a different sermon, for instance. Now, small little caveats. A lot of people say, whoa, 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 Les, you're, you're, you're being audience-centered, and you're going to end up telling people what their itchy ears want to hear because all you're doing is answering their kinds of questions. And this is how I qualify that. The questions that I do decide to pose to an individual text of Scripture are not willy-nilly. <laughs> um, that is, I believe the text itself actually creates, as it were, parameters of what are actually good questions to ask and what are not so good questions to ask. L let, me get, let me get theological on you for a second. You have this sort of ongoing discussion among Christian theologians between what one might call systematic theology and biblical theology. Systematic theology is the theology that looks for themes that arise from Scripture that you then group into systems, as it were, and you have a, air quotes, systematic theology. 
Biblical theology, on the other hand, traces, as it were, the uh, uh, movements of themes in Scripture through the actual texts informed by the writers and the uh, you know uh, context within redemptive history that they're in. That's a similar exercise to preaching, I would say. You always have the infallible text that I'm dealing with, but I also have the systematic approach to Scripture that hedges me in from asking the text not-so-smart questions, right? The joke I always used to tell with college students was, if I go to any text in Scripture on, say, sexual fidelity, and I look at it and say, well, I want this text, you know, people are really asking this question, how far is too far for me to go sexually with someone that I'm not married to, right? Right. I think that's a dumb question, (laughs) because it's not within the range, as it were, of what the Bible teaches me are good questions to pose to that text. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, but I still want to say this. I do think one of the reasons why preaching doesn't connect with a lot of people is because there's a lot of preachers out there that are standing up answering questions that nobody in the congregation is actually asking. You follow me on that one? <laughs> maybe maybe um, one or two. Maybe one or two are actually asking it <laughs> in, in, in the back, you know. <laughs> that's why I think that there's a real burden on ministers to make sure that part of their sermon preparation is listening well to their congregation and knowing the way in which they are grappling with the truths of Scripture themselves. Um, Because, again, if I get up there and start pontificating about things that are only autobiographical, right, uh, things that I'm going through, uh, then I'm going to impoverish my people or alienate half of them or more. It's funny because uh, I, I think in one of our preaching classes, and, and Chapel might have even talked about this in, in his books on preaching, where you imagine the person in the congregation with this sign in the back that says, so what, you know, and it kind of is pressing right. you to really think about who you're talking to. And I'm like, I'm like, that's not that's not a metaphor. That's not a hypothetical thing. Like you can see it on people's faces. Like, right. so what? what? What are you telling me? You know, I, I, I don't even know the I don't know what question you're answering. And it's funny because sometimes when a lot of times people find their favorite preachers because they Googled or they YouTubed a question. How, how do I understand dating? How do I understand what it means to be a man? How do I understand what it, what a church is for? And then after searching for that topical thing, they find a bunch of expository you know, sermons, but it kind of shows that that's where everybody's coming to it. And, and maybe you could talk about this a little bit because as it relates to how preaching shapes a congregation, we have all these podcasts, YouTube channels, you have podcast preachers, all these types of things, these huge platforms. And it sort of abstracts the act of preaching from its context. So you're you're hearing sermons from a guy in Texas, you know, to a particular situation, but you're listening to it and you're in, you know, New York City, you're in Kansas, something like that. And the, the, the actual local kind of, it's almost like you're removing something from its natural habitat and then you're abstracting it and bringing it out. How, how does your congregation, knowing your people as a pastor, shape the way that you select texts, that you think through series, you think through how you want to approach a particular topic? Yeah, I'll say this. I, I'm not as critical of, you know, the, the, the podcasting revolution, and now every pastor has a voice online. And can well, I'm not talk. either because we're on one right now. So <laughs> that's exactly right. Far I'm totally I, for it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah mostly because, I, look, would to God that more of my people would listen to more sermons. Oh, sure. what do you think? Absolutely. So in general, I'm, I'm okay with that. I do think though, that there's a continuum. Again, think about an individual who lives in Oxford, Mississippi. It's a university community. Uh, half the citizens are students in our town. Um, but th- th- there's there's almost a continuum, as it were, between that individual as a pure individual, right? Who says to themselves, um, where is God in my pain, for instance, right? That's a very individual question, a very heartfelt cry from a soul that wants to know what God's word has to say about that. But that individual is also complex, is he not? Um, she also has the ability to, let's say, take in news because of the 24-hour news cycle or because of just the proliferation of the Internet. They have the ability to take in ideas from so many sources 
that they're also asking different questions. Like, well, how does my faith fit in with this trans community that I've gotten involved with on TikTok or something, or found some of their ideas compelling? So I do think that as individuals, our own complexity um, um, gives me, I think, good voice to say, look, whether you're listening to somebody hyper-local, like your pastor who you meet with on a semi-regular basis and you listen to preach week in and week out, or whether you're listening to, you know, some guy who's some nationally known guy who, who tends to preach in terms of, uh, of wide sweeping trends, that individual is just as, touches both of those worlds. Does that make sense? That's so true. Anybody in between there, I think is still valuable. I, like I said, I'm less critical of people imbibing preaching, again, qualifying that it's good preaching, uh, because of their own complexity. They, 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 yes, they need individual attention, and they need to know their place in this world. They need to know that they have hope for the future. Uh, they need to know, well, God forbid we broach this subject, they need to know how to vote. Uh, they need to know how to look forward to the future. Um, is there any hope for Christianity in the next 100 years and for my children and my grandchildren? That has everything to do with whether or not you're going to have any more children or how am I raising my children? Are they uh, prepared for a world that's growing in its more secular nature or not? So, yeah, I, I invite all of those people on that spectrum for that individual to partake of preaching uh, because it speaks to their, um, yeah, the broadness of their own experience. That's a great point. And I, I think I probably would go back and amend because because now that I'm thinking about it, you're right that our individual lives are in both of those worlds. It's not as though we're all these localized people and these these external podcast things are invading that, but we actually are are so hyper-connected in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think there is, we can be overly, maybe an overcorrective with like social media. We can miss the fact that most people, a lot of people got into preaching or learned about reform theology or really the gospel took flight for them in their heart because they heard a preacher from, you know, New York City, or they heard a preacher from Dallas or what, you know, different, different types of, of influences. And uh, so there's, a, and there's an interesting cross pollination between denominations, even. And I think in terms of preaching style, like when, when I think about Brian Chapel, like proposition and then the three points and, and the, the Christ centered preaching model, which I, I still use that. I mean, I think it's a great model. It still seems like a very Presbyterian model. I mean, you look at some like the Baptist thing and it's like, you know, I, I love like, you know, John MacArthur's like the king of the expository preaching, but he didn't follow Chapel's thing at all. I mean, it's like there's like nine points and, you know, and John Piper's got 14 sub points. So it's interesting seeing all these styles. And yet I think there is a cross pollination where people are growing in their preaching because they're being they're getting used to different styles, different traditions. And it's there could be some mutual enrichment going on there. Um, so yeah, yeah, what a wild time to be alive, you know? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and uh, Keller has a book on preaching where he mentions this, that uh, I think, he, is it Malcolm Gladwell? He said you got to do something like 200 times before you uh, develop. It was like a 10. Oh, oh I, I, have, I have heard, I think Keller mentioned something like that, where you have to preach like, yeah. Hundreds of sermons before you find so your own voice, or something like that. You find your own voice, and there's no doubt that that's true. Um, what, what people usually want to fight over is the degree to which um, you should lean on the preaching of others while you're in the midst of those 200. Um, and again, I'll, I'll try to be controversial here for your for your listeners' sake to give them something interesting to think about. I've always leaned on there's an there's an old Methodist bishop by the name of Will Willimon. Come here with William Willimon. In Methodist circles, he's very much a big deal. He wrote a wonderful book called Resident Aliens with uh, hmm. Stanley Hauerwas many, many years okay. ago. A lot of people have read outside of Methodist circles. But Willimon's got these two great little volumes on being a pastor. Um, and it's kind of his uh, you know, uh, pastoral training, homiletics training, whatever else. And he says in that book, he said, look, when you're early trying to figure out preaching, um, go out and find the people that light up your heart and just do what they do. <laughs> And again, everybody's like, no, that's plagiarism. And let me let me ride a little hobby horse for just a second. Plagiarism is not copying other people's work. Plagiarism is copying someone else's work and claiming it for your own. Um, in my experience, when young ministers come out of seminary fresh and full of, you know, <laughs> full of theology and ready to inflict it on their congregations, um, 
uh, ready to inflict it, ready to exactly. just, yeah, yeah. Um, I tend to think, hey, look, just follow what someone else was doing for a while, right? Mm. Um, now, admit that you're doing it. <laughs> you can't lie and pass it off as if it was all your own. But but I actually tend to appreciate someone who will say, man, growing up, I found this guy, you know, his name is so-and-so. Uh, he preaches at such, such a place. He just had such a big impact on me. I really tried to do whatever I did to model after how he did it. Sure. I would say, good on you. And of course, after 100, 150, 200 sermons, hopefully that voice becomes your own. And you begin to adapt and mold and change. But there's a formative period there where I feel like in many ways some seminaries are asking, well, let me get dramatic about it. I think sometimes seminaries are asking pastors to do something which is really unhelpful, which is to totally reinvent the wheel of hermeneutical effort and, and exegetical effort when, let's be honest, the Reformed tradition is not a tradition, let's say, that rewards novelty. Can I put it that way? No, no, no. We're mildly what's yeah. delivered, people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so look, if some, if Spurgeon did this as well as he did, and I lift a section out of Spurgeon, again, I've got to acknowledge that I got it from Spurgeon, but if that guy did it probably as well as it can be done and it translates to my context well, knock yourself out, pal. Uh, draw on those sources. But that makes everybody nervous, and all the homiletics professors are like, no, don't, don't let them cheat. Like, it's not cheating. It's just learning the uh, the art form. You don't mean like actually read the whole sermon. You just mean like quote a section of it? It, it, it doesn't matter. Again, if someone stands up and reads a whole sermon and be like, yeah, you probably got to do a little more work in that regard. But if someone looks and says, hey, I was looking through this text and I realized that there was an outline to the text that really speaks to where we are. And sure enough, Spurgeon had kind of pulled that outline out. I got no problem with you lifting that outline. I really don't. Now, does that mean you need to use all his illustrations and say the these and the thou's? He's saying, well, no, dumb dumb. Translate it into the language which your people can hear. Find illustrations that are actually about your context and experiences right. that you've had. But the elements of that sermon, I think, ought to be fair game as long as you cite it. See, right. yeah. As long as you, you don't cite pass it, it off like as if it's your own right. Creation. And if I have yeah. a congregation and someone said, "Well, you know, he got that outline from Spurgeon." Well, do I care as long as it didn't put me to sleep on Sunday morning? <laughs> I mean, come on. He said that he got it from there. Uh, do I want him to stay there for the next, uh, you know, whatever, five or six years of being a preacher? No. I'd like for him to develop and get some creativity and see. But in the meantime, I'm okay with him standing up and saying, this captured my imagination. Uh, I, we ought to have a whole other podcast about the role of the imagination in the life of the Christian uh, life. I, love, I would love that. I mean, I, I do think I remember just starting out preaching, and I still feel like I'm still a novice just growing in it but i would try to think like whoever preacher i was listening to a lot like how would they approach this how would they even do their intro and just try to get you know it, it was almost like because man you sit there and you look at that word processing document it's a little you know blank page and you're just sitting there and you're like where do i begin you know and yeah. uh it can be a daunting task but uh so why don't you talk about you know what's just the mechanics of like What's it like for you as you start to get into a text, as you're sitting down and you're preparing and you're thinking about the sermon? How would you describe your sermon writing yeah. process? The hardest work for me, the hardest, the most time-consuming work for me uh, is the preparation of the series, okay? Uh, 99 times out of 100, I'm not just delivering a sermon on a text that's detached from you know, a larger theme or a larger pastoral purpose. Um, now, nine times out of 10, that pastoral purpose is simply to work through verse by verse the book of Ephesians, right? But again, I'm trying to, I'm trying to convince your listeners here that before I start to just dive in and preach Ephesians, I have to ask the question, what exactly am I, what, what question am I posing to this particular book? Or maybe not so much a question as it is a posture that I'm going to take towards it. I think you can go to Ephesians and say, you know, tell me about uh, the the glory of God's sovereignty in uh, in um, in salvation, and it would yield a wonderful series. The Book of Ephesians. 
I think I could look at the book of Ephesians and say, tell me about the formation of God's people into this thing called the church, the ecclesia, which itself would yield a number of things. So step number one in sermon prep for me is deciding how am I going to approach this series? And typically I try to sum it up into a question. Um, you know, we're trying to, I'll give an example. Uh, my associate pastor here at Christ Pres and I are working through the gospel of Matthew, Lord willing, through the next nine months uh, in our uh, time together. Um, we've done two thus far, but we're asking this question, what does it mean for the arrival of the great Messiah? Hmm. What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill, to be the fulfillment of everything that was to become? How does he complete our story, right? <clears throat> and so with that question in mind, that's when I start with a text. And it can bracket itself depending on however the study leads me, um, once I've got the question, you've got to spend some time with the text. You read it as many times as you can, uh, especially for context. Mostly in my read-throughs, it's mostly for context because the word studies, in my opinion, happen as you work through it. Because where do you start with your word studies if you don't know what your overarching theme is? Uh, and that's when I start picking up commentaries that I trust. Um, you know, the, the, the commentaries are plentiful and they're out there and many can be helpful. Lots can be completely useless. Um, but at any given time, that's just part of the study, referencing other sources that I've read. Uh, every pastor keeps a library of topical uh, illustrations, um, quotes, and a way of storing those things that can be relied upon. Um, eventually, what you begin to look for are ideas that are emerging from the text. And those ideas are very much informed by what I think that sermon ought to be stressing, what it ought to be painting in their imaginations. Um, and once those things come out, they end up becoming points. And so if I've got the, a homiletical idea, as they used to call it in seminary, and a series of insights that I think are poignant, I don't care whether it's one, two, three, seven different insights, uh, I start to put those things together. And the hope is that they attach together to one large central idea that I'm trying to get, get across. Um, and then I try to make sure that I finish in 28 minutes. For some reason, very arbitrarily, a friend of mine, we took these jobs uh, about five years ago, and um, we decided that we were not going to inflict any sermon on our people that went past 28 minutes. So I've kept my side of the bargain. I'm not sure about him or not, but we're I'm curious it. about that. I mean, there was a there was a, a YouTube video I saw where people were discussing sermon length, and you know, I feel like in Reform circles, like the longer the better. Like let's three and a half hours Puritan style. <laughs> this is the way, you know. And uh, whereas. I have friends in the Anglican in the Anglican tradition where, you know, it's like a homily, it's like 15 minutes, 17 minutes, something like that. And and I think in both in the Reformed and the Anglican tradition, the sermon, I want to say they, they play a different role, but I think there's in, in terms of even how they view the liturgy of everything, the sermon plays maybe I don't want to say de-emphasize, but it, well, oh, it is a it is a different, you know, it's a different oh, yeah. role. The proclamation of the word is totally diminished in a lot of those. I, I'm, I'm quite critical of those traditions for that reason. But yeah, keep going. Now, how do you, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on sermon length? You know, yeah. this is a, something that I don't think gets talked about a ton, but, but what are your thoughts on that? I'm only partially kidding when, I, when I'm about to say what I'm about to say. And that is, <laughs> I think that there are certain individuals can get, get away with certain amounts of time. Okay. Um, a 50 minute Tim Keller sermon never bothered me. Now, my wife, maybe not necessarily so. She reacted, reacts to different kinds of preaching. So my friend and I, a couple of years ago, decided that every preacher is always born with a time limit that they may or may not be aware of. <laughs> and sometime along your, your preaching, you have to like come to the awareness, be like, hey, buddy, I love you, but you're about a 20-minute preacher. So just own it, all right? <laughs> You're not Piper. Piper's going to go on for 45 minutes. And that, that, that's because that's he's Piper, right? He gets right. to do that kind of thing. You, on the other hand, anyway, the, the, arbitrarily, I, you know. You got to know your limits. Question of respect. And, you know, people want to make these big cultural pontifications like, ah, we live in the YouTube generation and the, uh, what's the average uh, TED talk? What, 18 minutes or something? To something that? like that. It's pretty quick. Yeah. I'm not saying that I'm following that, but I do think that I want to be aware of the fact that I, I want to give my people the ability to digest what I'm getting. And semi, I tend to find out that somewhere around that 25 to 30 minute mark is where you start to get people shifting in their seats, 
they're struggling to sort of maintain that focus and that concentration. That to me is not a battle worth fighting. If I can bring that thing in for a landing and they walk away with a greater impact to it, great. All the more reason. Um, making these big, hard and fast rules for preachers for it is not my not my tendency. So yeah, sometimes it's like, no, I I can listen to a sermon for an hour. I just I just can't listen to your sermon for an hour. <laughs> you know what I mean? How do, really we, how do I break this to you, brother? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now you say you spend time in the text. You start you start with those questions, and you're reading the text for context. You're, you're you're looking at the commentaries, but then you're not bringing your commentary. You're not bringing like a book report on all these commentaries into the pulpit. There's there's some kind of thing that all preachers are doing, which I don't know what other word other than creativity I, I can use for it. Now again, that people are like, well, what do you mean? You shouldn't be creative. You just give the text. But I, I think it's. It's really the communicating part of it. How do I get this to land on people? Not in a manipulative way, but in an earnest way in which you're almost um, – you're trying to get past people's defense I, I, defenses. Like I think about Lewis. C.S. Lewis is, it was a master of this. You read, and you're like, first of all, you know exactly what I'm thinking and articulating in a way I've never thought of before. But it's a way of well-thought-out communication. It disarms you, and – it, it, it kind of uh, it, it puts you at ease, and then it then it kind of really challenges you to think about the world and yourself and God in a different way. What is it like in that moment when you're actually, I don't know if you go in with a manuscript or an outline, but describe that creativity, that that thing that happens after you've done your research and you're trying to put it together. What what is that like? Yeah, I I don't know how much. I like your word creativity mostly because it honors what I'm trying to say about the fact that there is, there's a desire to break through. I'm trying to break through people's boredom. I'm trying to break through their, their expectations. Oh, I know what this is going to be about. Um, you want to arrest someone with, with information. You know, I, I, could, I could toss the whole question out if I wanted to and just say, look, there are certain people, and I can't explain it, uh, why they do hold my attention and other people don't. And it's even uh, different from different people, right? I've known some people that are really compelling to me, but not so much for my wife. Um, so I don't know, other than to say, uh, other than to say that like, there's never a time when you're not writing a sermon. How about that? If, if you are a preacher by trade and you're making your living off the word, you're living in a walking sermon preparation. And you just kind of got to own that as a young minister, that that's not really a separate part of my life. Hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, I had this deal with my children that I would not use them as sermon illustrations. And I think I've, they probably give me maybe a C plus on that one. But they just keep giving you so many good ones. I know. If you could give me such good material, I'd be fine. But yeah, <laughs> um, every now and then, of course, I have. But you got to be careful about drawing off of home life and things like that. But, you know, every piece of media that you consume... How about that? Let, let me let me default the question this way. I think that there is a responsibility for a preacher to be a student of life and a student of real life. And if cultural withdrawal is sort of an instinct for you, whether that's by personality, maybe you were hurt, uh, maybe you've got trauma in your background because of that, I don't know that your preaching is going to necessarily be enhanced. And a lot of people get nervous because like, oh, you're talking about you know, watching all these TV shows that the kids watch. And now i got to be flipping through TikTok in order to know what the kids are saying. The people that are the most cynical about that are the ones that I have the least interest in hearing from. <laughs> because that is where my congregation lives. My college students, well, now my adults, are hours flipping through TikTok and Instagram. Facebook is dying, but, you know. The, the, their social media is still a thing. Now, granted, people are taking shots at it, and it's a terrible problem, and our children are depressed, and all of that stuff is true. Um, uh, David Brooks and, and all the other writers that are exposing, Jonathan Haidt, those guys are exposing what social media is doing to it. Yes, I'm not saying that. But if I have sort of a totalizing uh, wall around any exposure to those things, I just think that's gonna, that's gonna, that's gonna stunt my creativity because I'm not gonna have my audience in mind. Uh, I might say things that are incredibly true uh, and perfectly true and clearly true and uh, tied to the text. And yes, it will have eternal value for that and that alone. 
But will it be the most effective? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And so therefore, that's why, that's how I think of creativity is, yeah, I kind of like to hear from my people and the stuff that they're into. And if they'll take me with them sometime, let's go. And I'm not talking about movies. I'm talking about a great meal at a, at a nice restaurant or, you know, um, a TV show that they saw, a song that captured their imagination, uh, an experience with their children that lit up their hearts. I want to know what it is that's captured your imagination, because I really do believe that only the gospel can bring that passion in you to a full and true resolution, if that makes any sense. Well said. I mean, going on a broader context, you, you talk about culture and the radical shifts in culture and all the, the types of things that are happening, a lot of the insanity that's happening. And then the the, the pulpit becomes a place where that, you know, people are expecting an address, you know, that's going to affect the actual culture that they swim and they live in. Um, how do you think people should think about preaching today in our modern context when you have all these different questions about identity and sexuality and all these types of things? And it feels like things are much more hostile toward Christianity than ever before. How do you process that in terms of in what ways does it affect your preaching? In what ways do you think through that? Um, yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts on preaching in well, sort of a more hostile environment? Yeah, I would argue that it's never more, uh, <clears throat> it's never more relevant. Uh, if you are wrestling as a minister with whether or not your voice is important, I think that even just the last, what, seven or eight years of public life in America would let you know that people that are willing to stand up and to proclaim God's mind on the human condition People are listening. Um, now, granted, it's incredibly polarized. And so I would say that preaching is a whole lot more fraught. And I don't mean fraught from persecution. Um, you know, Keller spent a lot of time talking about, like, yes, we are entering into a time when clearly 30 years ago, people are like, uh, general spirituality is fine for you if that's what you're into. Uh, but today it's like an outright hostility. No, 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 no. Like Christianity is hate speech. That's where we're headed, and that's where we probably are in many contexts and corners of our culture right now. Um, so, so it's fraught, as it were, preaching more so. But I do think that being <clears throat> preachers spending time asking exactly what it is that they're saying um, and how I'm handling the text of Scripture has never been more relevant. Because again, let's take let's take an individual who's exposed to any measure of of, of national or international media. Let's say they're watching CNN or Fox News. They imbibe it all the time. They, uh, you know, they're online on a semi-regular basis. They're they're dealing with their children coming home from school and spouting off concepts that maybe some uh, professor uh, said them. Super super conservative or super super liberal. Who knows? Everyone is enmeshed in that sort of national conversation, and they're looking for a herald who will stand up in the public square and say, "Thus saith the Lord." I think that they, they want to know what God's mind is on these things because they're looking around them. I mean, if you look, if you're somebody probably 10 years older than I am, the, the world is almost unrecognizable. I mean, really, you turn on a television with people that are, again, in their mid 60s. I'm in my mid 50s now. Um, it is very hard for them to understand the kinds of conversations that are happening on a national level, especially around sexuality, especially around gender, uh, sort of movements that are coming from, 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 both conservative and liberal uh, directions, they want to know. Um, and so I, I would argue that like, I don't know exactly how to answer your question about how to speak well within that culture, other than the fact that like, you at least have an audience that you may not want to have, that may, may not thought that you would have had before. Um, and I don't think those people are drifting away as much as people oftentimes say they are. I know we always talk about the rise of the nuns. That's uh, right, yeah. Is associating with it. A great new book. I'll make a plug for my friend's book. Jim Davis is a pastor down in uh, Orlando, Florida. Just helped publish, co-publish a book uh, called The Great De-Churching. I was uh, actually just, in some classes with him at RTS Orlando. Yeah, Jim is fantastic, really, really bright, and a fantastic pastor. And just a really, really fascinating look, uh, statistically speaking, at where we find ourselves at this moment. But one of the things that he's also discovering is, is a lot of the objections that people are offering for departure from the institutional church are not tied to the major doctrines of scripture. They're tied to relational and cultural issues. Um, 
And I think that's an opportunity for a preacher to look and say, look, people still want to hear from you, that they need to hear from you. Uh, don't, don't get so gripped in partisanship, first of all. Don't start jumping over to the right or the left from the pulpit by any means. Uh, and not only that, trust the fact that the truth is always relevant. Uh, somewhere in there, there's a, there's a, even if it may not be the turning around of the church in the West, oh, how do we save the church in the West? I don't know that that's my calling. But I do know that the week in and week out faithful exposition of God's word does function as cement. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a force of connection more than it's a force of division. And in our day, the latter is far more prominent than the former. And so preaching is so relevant to hold our culture together uh, with, as it continually splits apart from other cultural influences. Think about Eugene Peterson talking about uh, obediences or, or the Christian life as a, as a long obedience in the same direction. And I wonder if there's something with that with preaching where, you know, it's yeah. not. I, I, one, one funny well, thing is. Pastoral ministry will do that to you. I, yeah. I've had a lot of people, you know, I was in campus ministry for 25 years, like you said at the top of the show. And they've asked me like, oh, how's it different in the last five years in local church ministry? And what I always say to them is I'm, I'm, I'm more cynical, but also more hopeful at the same time. Uh, you know, with college students, you can put a series together and you can make some waves, right? Uh, we're going to talk about human sexuality. We're going to talk about the, the Bible's view on the sovereignty of God. And you can, you can create some stir <laughs> in the local church. Not so much. Uh, yeah. When my cynicism is welling up, I find myself being like, oh, there's this issue going on in my church. Oh, I know. I'll preach a sermon on it. That'll do the trick. Yeah. <laughs> you just get cynical, right? Because you're like, oh, are these people really listening? Are they going at it? However, and again, it's taken about four or five years to really realize this. I have now begun to really value the long, slow distance, Right. The, the week in, week out faithfulness of regular themes emerging from Scripture, of, a, of what we pray is a faithful handling of the text that leads them back into uh, dependence on Jesus and a longing for the Holy Spirit to be active in their hearts, th th that, ma that makes a difference. It holds families together. It resolves conflicts between generations and in turn holds communities together. Uh, a, a, a town like Oxford size, which is what? 30,000 some plus students, about 50 <clears throat> faithful, uh, you know, pulpits that preach God's word. Like it means people's vitality uh, mm -hmm. in a town like this. And that's true for neighborhoods in, in, in large cities as well. But, you know, whatever that's worth. No, that's well said. I mean, I, I, sometimes I talk with people and when people talk about preaching, it's like the difference between a conference sermon and then like the day in day, uh, week in, week out sermons, like the conference sermon. That's like, these are guys that have written books about what they're about to preach on. And this is their best stuff. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, and then if you think that you can do a conference sermon every week, that's going to impact you like it did at Passion or at T4G, you know, it's like, it's not going to happen. Gonna but thinking happen. about that kind of plotting week by week work, that's, that's a hard perspective to take. Cause I think you do think like a sermon series. And at the end of this, this will be this kind of change. But I, I think Mark Dever said something about like, don't people un overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what can happen in five years. And I wonder if well, there's something that, to that. That's exactly what I was making. Well said. Well, you've been at this for a long time and I'm, I'm curious, just reflecting back on your many decades of preaching. Um, is there anything you would tell, you know, young Les as he's starting off preaching and maybe even attach to that? Are there ways that you feel like you've personally matured and grown in your preaching? And what would those things be as we kind of, bring this to a close? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think if I, if I went back and, you know, visited myself in my twenties and late twenties, when I was just starting to pastor, I, I do think being a lot more patient with myself, uh, I think would have, would have, would have helped. The, the great thing about getting older <clears throat> or being old, probably as a minister is people do tend to honor your, your time a little better. And they give you the, the space to do a lot more crafting um, and that's been that's been really uh, gratifying. In the last five years, I've had a, a, a leadership structure here at Place at Christ Pres in Oxford that has granted me that space to to develop, to craft, to study, to read, to listen. Um, but it takes leadership granting that to 
their pastor in order for that to happen. And I know a lot of guys who either because, you know, they just kind of took it on themselves without thinking, or they were just saddled with it by a congregation that's kind of gotten uh, lethargic. Um, they just, that, that's the last thing that ends up getting uh, paid attention to. But again, my argument back has always been like, man, that's my, that's that cement that's going to continue to draw theme lines through the imagination of my congregation that I want to have a voice in. I've, I've got sure. to be in that moment. I've got to be able to speak into that existential moment. Um, yeah. Or, or else what a loss, right? Uh, to set people sort of adrift into different areas that are not, um, not really helpful for them. So, yeah, I don't know. I, some of it is, I don't exactly know what it is that I'm doing. Someone comes up and like, Oh, that was so helpful. And I was like, really? I thought it was terrible. Or other times I'll be like, man, I just crushed that. And it's like crickets. (laughs) (laughs) I'm also realizing, and it would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. I have learned that the spirit is the one who's doing the work in a sermon. Um, And I am hoping to learn in my, you know, however many more decades God gives me in ministry, uh, that my posture of dependence and really a tangible longing for his presence, not just to be operative in my life in terms of a sanctifying force, but I'm talking about a, a, a nearness of Jesus where the spirit brings Jesus close uh, and that he walks with me as a pastor through all of the pastoral care situations you find yourself in that are just excruciating. Um, and that that nearness is an end in itself, right? I, I want for my people to be with him. Um, and if, and all I'm doing is leading them to them, but I can't lead them to them if I've not been there myself. <laughs> and so come Holy Spirit, right? Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come and be uh, present with your preachers so that what our people are getting is simply the overflow from whatever it is the two of y'all are talking about. And I mean that as in a tangible way as I can. I'll finish with Sinclair Ferguson. There were a number of uh, a number of years ago, we did a conference for us when I was with uh, Reform University Fellowship, the campus ministry I was associated with, RUF. Um, and he spoke at a conference of ours, and he was talking about prayer in the life of a minister. He said, look, there are going to be those seasons where you have to climb up into the cathedral in your soul and pour your heart out before the Lord. And it struck me because in the back of my mind, I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, Sinclair Ferguson has constructed in his imagination a place where he goes and meets with Jesus. And I thought to myself, I need that. <laughs> Sometimes the, uh, the um, you know, I don't know, the, 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 the nebulousness of the idea of God is so intangible to me that I really don't sense that, no, no, he's drawing near. He is, his spirit is in you. It is bearing witness to his love for you. Like, and, and I've got to find a way to construct that. And I, I do think sometimes we're a little too afraid of the imagination. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not pushing images for us to make these m- mental images of God in ways that are unhealthy. But I do think that the ministers, the preacher's greatest gift in this congregation is the overflow of what I found in that cathedral in my soul, uh, where Jesus meets with me and consoles me, teaches me, uh, convicts me, and brings me to himself. Because that's the whole point, right? Well said. You sound like a preacher. Ah, let's close in prayer, shall we? Uh, the ushers <laughs> we go. come forward and collect the plates. We'll finish out our time together. That's right. It's, <laughs> you know, talking about the offering, that, that's, that's the pinnacle of uh, that's exactly right. how you draw people in. I, I did want to ask, are, are there any pieces of uh, preaching advice you thought were just terrible? Maybe there's some cliches that you want to put to rest. I'm just curious <laughs> if any you have any of those oh, rattling around in your head. I don't like it when people stand up uh, whenever we have guys come who present themselves for candidacy in our presbytery and they stand up and they say, now, look, brother, if there is anything else in the world that you can do, you better go and do it because you've got to want so bad to be a preacher. I'm always on the back row looking at the guy next to me being like, I don't know about y'all, but I want to quit ministry about once a month. Um, (laughs) I hope that's not the standard out there. Because look, guys, it's it's hard. It's a challenge. God brings us into very difficult things, and ministry has its own unique challenges. Don't let that be the don't let your own certainty about it be the thing that decides whether you're going to do it. Let the truth of what you're preaching be the thing that pushes you into it. But 
yeah, I doubt whether I'm called to ministry all the time. So. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Les, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you sharing your thoughts. It's and, a treat, uh, Brian. I always love being with you, man. Absolutely, man. And we'll, uh, we'll put some, uh, put some links to some of your sermons. Maybe we can have people uh, get in on that. And again, yeah, appreciate your thoughts. Appreciate your time. Thank you guys for listening. Make sure you subscribe. Also on Instagram, That'll Preach Podcast. Make sure you share this with your friends. Hopefully it's a good resource for you guys and a blessing to you. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next week.